you have your Bibles, please turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in uh, verses 24 through 29 as we behold God's living word. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Charles Spurgeon once hosted D.L. Moody at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. And before the sermon... Spurgeon pointed to a family and told Moody before he preached, hey, remind me to tell you how that family came to Christ with a smile. So Spurgeon gets up and he preaches the word. And after the sermon, D.L. Moody reminds him, how did that family that you pointed out come to Christ through a smile? And Spurgeon told him the story that he was walking to church one day with his Bible in hand on the streets of London, and he noticed a girl in the window as he passed by. And this little girl was staring at him, and so Spurgeon stopped and he stared back, and he smiled. And the little girl was taken back by the smile, and she was grateful for it, and Spurgeon continued. Same week, or same, same thing next week, Spurgeon comes by, he smiles at the little girl, and ultimately she followed him to church. And ultimately brought her whole family. And the gospel was proclaimed and the whole family came to Christ and was sitting on the front rows of that historic church. The point of the story is a smile can bring people to hear the word, but it's the word that saves the soul. And so as we consider this little text of scripture today, we want to proclaim him. Uh, We've seen in the book of Colossians thus far, and if you're a guest, I do want to welcome you. We have been in this wonderful little book the last several weeks. But we have seen this glorious Christ who has been proclaimed and described by Paul. It's the Christ that owns everything. It's the Christ that reconciles all things to himself. And he is himself the gospel. And it is how we, the church, have been reconciled to him. And as we get into this little uh, passage, I do want to start by looking real quick at verse 28. In the first part of it, it says, him we proclaim. Brothers and sisters, it is him, it is Christ that we proclaim. Here's God's living word for you today. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the living word of God. Today, beloved, we will examine three things from Scripture. Three aspects of the Christian life as we participate in this Christ-exalting proclamation, proclaiming Christ in all things. And this is what we call the Great Commission. We participate in the Great Commission. I've titled this sermon, Proclaiming Christ, the Hope of Glory. And there are aspects that occur when we proclaim Christ. And I want to point out three of those to you 
today. First, when we proclaim Christ, suffering comes with that. We'll see that in verse 24. Uh, Verse 25, we'll see that with Christ-exalting proclamation, there is attached to it a stewardship from God. We have been given a mystery, and the mystery has been revealed in Christ Jesus, and we have a responsibility to proclaim Christ and nothing else. So we have to steward this call. And the third thing that we will see today is this. There is a purpose of proclamation. And as Corey has already mentioned it to us, it is to present everyone mature in Christ. And we'll talk about what that looks like, both for the saved and also for the one who is not saved. Beloved, as Christians, we are called to proclaim the wonderful mystery to everyone, everywhere, all the time. Proclamation is how the gospel is advanced. That is the method in which God has chosen to spread the gospel throughout all the world. And so we proclaim it, and when we proclaim it, we want to make sure that we are pointing to a person who is the embodiment of the gospel. His name is Jesus. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. We don't proclaim a set of morals or values or a religion. We proclaim a person. If we believe Christ is supreme over all things, beloved, we will proclaim him. He will spill out of our mouth we will not be able to contain him. If we believe in him, beloved, we will think it essential to tell all those we know and love about the glorious gospel as well as those that we do not know. And this is not just a responsibility for the individual, it's a responsibility for us, the church, the church known as First Irving. This is the evangelism strategy of our king. Every person Every street, all the time, this is what we do. Each of us have the glorious responsibility of this. So the first aspect of Christ-centered proclamation is that we will suffer. Suffering is attached to proclamation. You'll see that as the first point in verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. That little word now is a transition right there in verse 24. Paul has just reminded the Colossians of the glorious gospel. And he has reminded them to stay stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And this is the very reason that Paul became a minister, as he says in verse 24, our passage last week to proclaim this glorious gospel. And we see here that Paul is suffering on account of that proclamation. Had Paul never opened up his mouth about the gospel, he would not be writing from prison. But when he opens up his mouth, there are things that begin to happen. And so Paul is modeling both for the Colossians and he's modeling for the church today that as the gospel goes forward, Suffering attends it. Now, we do recognize that Paul has a specific and unique apostolic call, one that nobody in this room has. And we'll mention this before and we'll mention it again. We see in Acts chapter 9 that God set apart Paul for a specific apostolic ministry. And he explains to Ananias, after Paul had been saved by the risen Lord, he says, I am going to use him as my chosen instrument 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, this is what God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this was forewarned to Paul as he is saved, that he is going to suffer. And beloved, he did in fact suffer for the church. We see a short list of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And by the way, his suffering was not complete by the time 2 Corinthians chapter 11 was written. But we see that he had been beaten three times with rods. He had been scourged five times with the 40 lashes less one. He had been shipwrecked three times. He had been stoned once for the sake of the church, not to mention all the anxieties he had for the church that he bore in his body. We see here that he is suffering in his body, as the text says, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the Colossians. He is physically suffering on their behalf. Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What a provocative statement. And he's doing this for the sake of the church. So let me be very clear what the statement does not mean. It does not suggest that Christ's affliction is lacking in anything. Or that his atoning work wasn't completely sufficient in the eyes of the Father. He has just proclaimed in that Christ hymn, verses 15 through 23, how Christ is sufficient and preeminent and glorious in all things. And and it's how through Christ who reconciles all things to himself through the blood of his cross. So he is not talking about the atoning work of Jesus. This is called, remember, the propitiation of Christ, that he fully absorbed the wrath of God that you and I deserved, and that is complete. So let's rest in that work. So if it's not that, then what is Paul referring to? How can Paul be filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, this is called propagation. Propagation is simply this. When the gospel is carried forward, suffering goes with it. When we speak the gospel, people either receive the gospel or they reject the gospel. You remember what Paul says in another epistle. He says, the gospel is the aroma of life to some and it's the aroma of death to others. There is no third option. So this is the aroma of death for those who put him in prison. And he's writing on behalf of this right here to the Colossians. Paul is saying that as he suffers on behalf of the gospel, that it, it is filling up what is lacking. And it simply means this, as the gospel is being preached, and suffering comes with it, it's actually strengthening the church. The church is actually gaining encouragement by watching Paul suffer because Paul has hope in the midst of conflict. Just because they've thrown him in prison, he hasn't abandoned the hope of the gospel. He stayed there. He's stable there. And it's working to encourage the church. So when Paul speaks, he suffers like a weak and broken carrier who has within him the most powerful word of hope. Paul says elsewhere, when I am weak, he is strong. And that's on display right here in this little passage. 
And since Christ is the head of the body, as we've already mentioned in Colossians 1.18, the body itself will suffer just as the head did. We see this throughout scriptures. Paul is teaching the Colossians with, their own, with his own life that they're going to suffer. Remember, the Colossians are facing false teaching, and we're getting closer to what that false teaching is. But they are being rejected because they're holding to the gospel. They're feeling a little bit of this suffering within them. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you, Philippians, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Revelation 6 perhaps provides the most helpful answer of what it looks like to to fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. When the Apostle John writes in verse 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. Where the gospel goes, there is suffering that is attached to it. The Corinthians shared in the sufferings of Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.7. There is a fellowship in suffering, Philippians 3.10. Romans 8 says that you will inherit the glory of God provided you suffer. It is not a popular thing to say. Nobody loves suffering. And I don't think Paul is saying that he loves suffering. But he's grateful to suffer for the work that it's producing in them. The apostle Peter said the same thing. You share in the sufferings of Christ when you share his name. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, 1 Peter 4, count it all joy. Christ did it, Paul did it, the church does it. Theologians call this the birth pangs of the Messiah. When the people are suffering, when they're speaking forward the things of God, that means the, the son is close to return. And by the way, they're suffering for Christ here. Paul is suffering specifically for Christ. There's other ways that we have affliction in our lives. There's other ways that we suffer in our lives. And those things can be uh, forging and helpful as we are being molded into the character of Christ. But specifically here, he's talking about when we open our mouth and the gospel comes out of it, the church is going to suffer. So we have to be mindful of this. Perhaps most explicitly helpful for us is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 11 and 12, when he says, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Let me unpack that for just a second. When Paul is carrying around in his body the message of Christ. He is being persecuted for it. But it's strengthening the church and it's giving life to the church. And so the greatest manifestation of who Christ was for us, even though we've never gotten to see him with our own eyes, is when the weak carrier of the gospel is standing strong because the gospel is alive and well within him.
So we carry Christ in our mouth and it strengthens our brother and then our brother receives the gospel and he dies and he suffers and it strengthens another and this is how the gospel carries forward. And look what Paul's posture is in this. He's rejoicing in the sufferings of Christ. He's rejoicing. He's not rejoicing in just affliction itself. He's rejoicing that it's doing something. Here's the reality. He's able to do this because he profoundly loves Christ. Paul loved Christ. Deeply and profoundly, his great affection was Jesus. If we are to be honest, would we not suffer for the things that we love? Mother and father, would you not do anything for your children? If your children were in harm's way, would you not do anything to keep certain of their survival because you love them greatly? Husband, would you not stand in front of a bullet for your wife because you love her? We are willing to suffer for what we love. In a very light example, uh, my wife loves Torchy's queso. And when we were living in Raleigh, North Carolina, she got wind that Torchy's was coming to Raleigh and she was elated. And she began telling everyone that there is a Texas embassy and outpost headed our way. I'm, I, she loves queso. And, I, and she found out through their marketing that the first hundred people who stand in line at Torchy's get free queso for a year. And so she brings our three children on opening day to Torchy's. Now, opening wasn't until 11. My wife got there at 7 a.m. With our three children in the hot, humid, Raleigh summer. And she was the 70th in line. And we got queso for 10 months because the Lord called us the first serving. My point is this, we, we will suffer for what we love. We will suffer for what we love. And I do have a very serious question coming off a very funny illustration. Beloved, how much do you love Christ? How much do you love Christ? How much are you willing to suffer for him? Are you willing to open your mouth on his account? Are you willing to spread this glorious gospel to the nations? Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. Perhaps you recognize that God has chosen to use your word as the vehicle in which the gospel is proclaimed. And you've suffered for it. Perhaps you've never been in prison for it. Perhaps you have been blocked from a family member or the wedge has been placed there. Perhaps you've been marginalized and isolated at work because you stand for the things of God. Remember, it is going to be the aroma of death to some. It is worth mentioning that the culture that we live in is growing very tirelessly 
about the message of the need for the gospel. And persecution is heading more and more our way. Perhaps you've never suffered for the gospel. Perhaps you've never opened your mouth. Perhaps you've never proclaimed him to a friend in your community or to a family member that needs to hear. I want you to remember what Jesus says, fear not, I overcame the world. Do not fear when the world rejects you. Paul is rejoicing because it's still doing something in the church, just as it will for us. The second aspect of Christ-centered proclamation is stewardship. We have a responsibility with the proclamation that God has given to us. Notice with me what it says in verse 25. Paul became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him for you, the church, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of of this mystery, which Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul was assigned as an apostle by God to proclaim the, the truth to the Gentiles. But notice what it says in verse 26. And it's now been revealed to the saints. So we steward the same message that's been given to us. So what, was the, what, what did God call Paul to specifically do? Well, look what it says in verse 25. To make the word of God fully known. And how do you make the word of God fully known? Well, it gives us the answer the end of, uh, or at the beginning of 26. By proclaiming the mystery of Christ it was not fully known in the Old Testament what the mystery hidden for the ages was. Uh, Beloved, we've always had the privilege and the benefit of living on this side of the resurrection, not having to wait or anticipate what the glorious promise and the treasure was. But many before us did not know the mystery that God was slowly revealing over time. They did not understand the full work of Christ the way that we understand the full work of Christ now. We see back in Genesis 3.15 that a promise was made to God, that or a promise was made by God that the seed of woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, this is what theologians call the proto-euangelion. Proto meaning first, and euangelion meaning uh, gospel. Uh, euangelion, you hear evangelism in that. That's where we get the first mention of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. And from there, God in his kindness begins revealing all, page after page, covenant after covenant, who he is and what his plan is. He develops it further in Genesis chapter 12 by telling Abraham that this seed is going to ultimately bless the nations. And it says in Galatians 3 that he preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. And so this is the way that God has worked over time. He has revealed very slowly. So Israel waited for a long time anticipating a savior. Generation after generation longing and waiting to see. Is it found in the sacrificial system? No. Is it found in the judges or the kings? No. Was it found in the prophets? No, they were all pointing to the one that it was found in, but it wasn't found fully revealed in any of those things until the father said, this is Jesus 
my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then all the promises, all the covenants, everything found their yes in Jesus. And the mystery was revealed. The Old Testament is not just a bunch of stories that are episodical. They're not just by themselves. They're stories that are pointing to the one story person, the person who fulfills all the story, whose name is Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says to his disciples after he raised from the dead? He says, and you would think that the disciples would know after the resurrection who Jesus fully is, but they didn't yet. This is what he says to them. They're all sitting around going, man, he's alive now. And Jesus reads or says these words to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying everything that was written was pointing to me, the mystery revealed. And then I love verse 45 of Luke 24. He says, then Jesus opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. They were able to understand who he was at that moment as Jesus opens up their minds. And in God's kindness, Gentiles, that's what we were. He has made the mystery known to us and he has grafted us in. And now we have the joyous responsibility of stewarding this message as we proclaim it. This, the, the, the beautiful news that Jesus, the glorious one, dwells in lonely, lowly Gentile sinners. And that's what the mystery is. See with me there. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God used to dwell with his people in tents, Exodus 25, and in the tabernacle, and in the temple. But after Jesus died, rose and ascended to the Father's hand, he now dwells in you. That's the mystery revealed. Christ in you. Fellowship restored. Communion restored. Nothing blockading us from fellowship with the living God. He saves us. He lives within us. And he even provides hope, which is the hope of glory, Christ in us, for our suffering in the temporal. So we proclaim Christ, we suffer in this, but we're supposed to steward this and we're reminded because Christ dwells in us that we have hope awaiting us, a hope and glory. And Paul's gonna unpack this for us in Colossians 3. So like Paul, we have a responsibility to make known the word of God fully. The mystery that was now been revealed in Christ Jesus, we are stewards of this. I have a question for you. How are you stewarding this mystery? Do you, do you think it's a mystery that is for your good and for the good of others? Do you consider it something that you have a responsibility to actually guard and keep and declare and proclaim? Or do you just passively receive it? We receive it, and then we guard it, and we proclaim it. We're keepers of it. 
Do you consider yourself as a part of the plan for the nations? Do you guys remember Psalm 67? The people of God are, uh, they're declaring the ironic blessing from number six. And they're saying, Lord, bless us and keep us and make your face to shine upon us. But then it gives a reason in verse two, so that the nations would know you. That's how they viewed themselves. Are you stewarding it the way the people of God are displaying it in Psalm 67? As keepers of this beautiful gospel. And lastly, there's a reason why we steward this gospel. There's a a reason why we proclaim this gospel. There is a reason why we suffer for this gospel. That everyone would be found mature. That everyone would be found mature. Verse 28, him we proclaim mourning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And by the way, everyone means everyone. This is the work that we have been assigned. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. So it's Christ we proclaim, verse 28, in him we proclaim. So proclaim means to announce, to declare. Sometimes we say share the gospel. I would just say there's a difference between sharing what you think is true versus declaring and proclaiming what is actually true. And I pray that we would recognize the difference and see here Paul's urgency. He's teaching everyone about Christ and he's warning everyone of the dangers of false teaching. He's warning everyone what it is to be outside of Christ when judgment day comes. And he's doing it with all wisdom. As we get into Colossians 2, we're going to see how Paul is teaching them with warning. Stay away from false teaching. This is the warning. Paul's doing it to the Colossians and then we do it to one another. He's going to teach them what it looks like practically with all wisdom to consider your whole life in Colossians 3. What it looks like for having to have Christ as the center of your marriage what it looks like to have Christ as the center of our understanding of race, what it looks like to have Christ as the center of our thinking. Paul is proclaiming him in everything, in his evangelism, in his his prophetic work, in his counsel, in everything. And beloved, we are to do do the very same. This is not just the work of a pastor. This is not just the work of myself. We see as we kind of get a foretaste of what's going to happen in Colossians 3.16. This is what Paul says. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. We do this to ourselves. We remind and we teach and we proclaim and we disciple ourselves. And then we also share the gospel with the world. Now look with me in the last part of 28. There's a purpose of that proclamation. That is to see everyone complete in Christ. Maturity is for everyone because the gospel is for everyone. He wants to stand beside everyone and present them mature. And and, and kind of what that means in the original context is Paul is saying, I want to stand next to everybody in the Colossae church and advocate for their faith on how the gospel has changed them to the one who gave them the gospel. Do you care about your brother and sister in that way? 
to, to think about them and the spiritual progress of one another the way that Paul is thinking about it. Now, we want to recognize that the gospel, as it's proclaimed to everyone with the goal of having everyone presented mature, is both proclaimed to the lost, that's called evangelism and missions, and then it's proclaimed one to another all the time, and that's called discipleship, or growing in maturity, growing up in the body of Christ, into the head, as, as was read for us in Ephesians 4. And we have the responsibility to do both of those, all, all our primary application for today is proclaim him, neighbor, Christian, family member. We proclaim him. That's the goal. So there is a saving purpose to the unsaved, and there's a sanctifying purpose to the saved. Paul's aim, and it ought to be our aim, beloved. It's my aim as your pastor, if I could be completely explicit. Uh, I want I want to mince no words. My responsibility before you is best described in Galatians 4.19. My little children, this is what Paul says to the church, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until we so look like Jesus because we so understand who he is. And we have not gotten over who he is. And we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. Paul says, I, I preach Christ and him crucified. It's the same message over and over again. This is how we learn who God is best at the cross. Jesus did not say, and, and let me say this before I say that. We should desire for the nations to be saved. We should desire for blind men to see and lame women to walk, for those who don't know that there's a mystery to tell them about the mystery, this is the work of the evangelist. This is the work of the church. And I hope that that is a growing desire in you. We also have a responsibility to take deep care of one another. We have ABF for a reason. We have D groups for a reason. We proclaim, we come into this room. It might look silly to the outside world that we come and sit here and listen to the same things over and over again, but it's not silly. We're supposed to listen to the word of God because it transforms us again as we behold the glory of, of God in the face of Christ. And we do this over, and we do this over. Jesus said, he did, Jesus, when he gave the commission to the disciples, he did not say, go out into the world and have people make decisions about me. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. The way that he defines disciples in Luke 6.40 is a disciple is not greater than his teacher, but ultimately, after he spends time with his, his teacher, the disciple looks just like his teacher. Do we look like our Lord? Do we look like the Apostle Paul? Are we allowing the gospel to take root? Are we preaching the crucified Christ to our own hearts and to our brothers and sisters? Because it actually transforms us into the image of the crucified and risen Lord. This is the work. And finally, we'll see that Paul cannot do this work by himself, 29. He's striving and toiling in this labor. 
Uh, Agonizomai is the Greek word. He's agonizing over their spiritual progress. He's laboring. But lotus, it's not his flesh. Look what he says in 29. It's pretty fascinating. It says, I am toiling and struggling. And then he changes pronouns. And he says, with all his energy that he's powerfully working within us. So the Christ who dwells in you is working through you for the sake of the body as it's been made into the image of the one who saved it. The body truly does grow up into the head. It proclaims this glorious Christ. It's transformed into this glorious Christ as we look like him. Is Paul's goal your goal? If you're taking notes, that's a great question. Is Paul's goal your goal? The maturity of every person. The maturity of God in every person. To the lost and to the saved. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Paul was fully convinced that the mystery of Christ had the power to transform from darkness into light. I would even submit to you that it's hard to be mature in Christ or to be formed into maturity in Christ without proclamation. If there isn't a growing love and affection for the one that has saved us and a desire to proclaim him and a willingness to suffer for him, then there probably hasn't been yet a day in which we have brought into maturity in him. And I know this is a struggle, guys, to share the gospel, to proclaim him. It's a major struggle because we all fear man. And I confess before you today, I fear man as well. I have to be reminded of the importance to fear the Lord, to tremble at his word. Two applications quickly from this. Do you often pray and ask God, to burn off your fear of man, that you would proclaim him. How often do you pray that your affections for Jesus would grow? When is the last time that you prayed that? That you would love Christ more than anything else? We have to believe what the word says, that when we ask, he will provide. We're very quick to pray for diseases to be healed and for marriages to be restored. And brothers and sisters, we should pray for that all day, every day. But if Paul's prayer in this whole long text is that they would grow in the knowledge of his will, which is the the mystery of Christ revealed, that we would know him and grow in him and be made mature in him, how often is that our prayer? Simple ways that you can enact this is just in your groups. The people that you walk with, are you walking with people that will hold you to this? And are you holding the brothers and sisters in your D groups and your ABF to this? How often do you guys ever talk about the maturity in Christ? I want to grow in the knowledge of his will and be changed by him. We have the responsibility to respond to God's word today. It's a joy to do that. 
Is your goal to proclaim him? Do you want to grow in this? Then, fellow Christian, I would encourage you to ask the Lord for this in our time of response, to give you a zeal for the nations and to give you a zeal for one another that is birthed in a great love and affection for the gospel of Christ that's been given to us that we steward and sometimes suffer for. If you are not a Christian here, I want to be very explicit to you. I have no hidden agenda. We want you to know the gospel of Christ and to be saved by it. We want you to know that there is no hope anywhere else. And the hope is found right here in this text. The hope of glory is Christ in you. And if you're, if you're feeling like you, you don't know where hope is found or you're struggling to see what the point of this life is, I want you to know his name is Jesus. And the glory of his name will be proclaimed in all the earth and he will return and he will have for himself a church, a bride that he will dwell with forever. And we want you to be a part of that church, that wedding day. Here in a few minutes, we'll have pastors down on the front row to talk to you about these things. The steps are gonna be opened up for anybody that feels compelled to pray or to talk. And we're gonna trust the spirit of God to work and move. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your living word. It's been made known to us, Gentiles, of all people, those far off, those vile in your sight, Father, but you have saved us through the blood of Christ. You have made known to us the glorious mystery that even your people didn't know about. God, would you do work in our heart to increase our affection for Christ? God, I pray we're like Paul who rejoices in the sufferings because he is considering its work in other people. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the work of the gospel in other people and he's willing to suffer for it. God, would this room be filled with those type of people? God, would you fill me in my heart to be that kind of person, Lord? We need you to work and move the one who dwells in us, the hope of glory. Would you work all of these things out within us, Father, for the glory of your name and the good of the church and for those who are lost this very moment. In Christ we pray, amen.